How do you get the Build Back Better bill to pass? Just change the name. I'm Monica Perez, and this is today's Deep Dive. Okay, today we're going to dive off a tortured headline from USA Today. Shouting distance. That's how close the Inflation Reduction Act would get the U.S. to its climate goals. (laughs) There's so many things wrong with that. It's not an Inflation Reduction Act that is, that that in itself is tortured. The name of the bill is tortured, even more tortured than this USA Today headline. And anyone would say it's these are climate goals. That's not an inflation goal. It probably has to be the opposite because it's more expensive. So they didn't mention anything in the article about why it was named the Inflation Reduction Act. Obviously, it was just to get it passed. It had originally been filed as the Build Back Better Act, which was that, or bill, which was that giant behemoth when spending was all the rage. I think it was maybe a year ago or more that it was filed as that. And since then, there's been a couple of spinoffs. One was the Infrastructure Act, which passed. So the Build Back Better thing was anywhere from $4 billion to $6 billion. The Infrastructure Act was, I think, approached $2 billion. This is a kind of weird one because it has a lot of revenue-raising provisions in it so that it's they're saying that it raises $800 billion in revenue, or almost, but only spends under 500 billion. So, I'm going to break it all down. It it's a really weird situation because it was passed through the budget reconciliation measure, which means that it can be brought to the floor for a vote in the Senate and there isn't a filibuster, so you don't need 60 votes and since it's 50% or 50 votes are Republican and 50 are Democrat, they would never have even brought it to a vote if the Republicans could have filibustered. They got no Republican votes. It was 50 Democrat votes, zero Republican votes, and Kamala Harris was the tiebreaker. There have been 294 VP tiebreaker votes in the Senate in U.S. history. So because it's a reconciliation bill, though, it had to have be it had to be a budget bill. So they had to scrap all the social provisions that were originally in it. I think this was originally called like I think it might have been like the social infrastructure bill or something, but but the social stuff is out. It's actually, I mean, I didn't read the actual bill, but from my copious amount of research, it seems pretty well-defined what's in it. It's not super sprawling. Although I have to say many of these things like took me down rabbit holes, but I'm really trying to have some discipline here and just give you the big picture because this is going to be law probably. Congress is probably just going to pass it on Friday. So I want you to know what it is. And I may actually dig into some of these things in later deep dives because they do indicate like the bigger agenda. And and I was starting to think there is something in here they don't want us to know about because of the Mar-a-Lago raid So the U.S. government raided Donald Trump's home and took his stuff, and it's really outrageous. I mean, but it seems like a big distraction from something they don't want us to know. So I thought maybe it was this, um, but I didn't read the actual original, the actual legal document, so I don't know what's buried in there. But I did, there were a few things that I thought were weird. I'll tell you what's in the bill, and then a couple of things that I noticed were a little weird. 
The main provisions here are climate stuff, health stuff, and taxes. <laughs> Inflation is just a whatever, not even in it. Okay, let's start with the climate stuff. Now, this thing moved around a lot in the final hours because as a budget reconciliation procedure, they had to do what's called a votorama. <laughs> so they could just add and take away a bunch of things and just vote on them. So this was moving around a lot till the very end. But it looks to me like it's something like $369 billion allocated to climate change over the next decade. So all these numbers are for a decade. So when they say it's an $800 billion bill of revenue generation, that's 800, that's 80 billion a year. So this is 369 billion over 10 years for climate stuff. It includes 30 billion over 10 years for a production tax credit for wind and solar power. It includes tax credits for nuclear power and carbon capture technology I'm not going to get into my feelings or information or whatever viewpoints on the whole carbon dioxide thing, which is what plants grow on, whatever. Uh, it also includes a new fee on excess methane emissions from oil and natural gas drilling. It gives buyers who purchase North American-built electric vehicles up to $7,500 in federal tax credits. And they're doing that to adopt, to encourage the adoption of electric vehicles and to encourage the American electric vehicle industry. But it has tons of strings attached. It has minimums of how much the components must come from North America. But in order to get this credit for yourself to buy one of these vehicles... The vehicle that you buy has to have no raw materials or components from China. So I thought that was extreme, and it folded right into, I think, the last deep dive I did about microprocessors or superconductors, where the Chips and Science Act makes sure that anybody who gets those subsidies does not build advanced semiconductors in China. So they're using this money to keep advanced tech out of China, or at least to separate our market for advanced tech from their production of advanced tech. And it got me to just, I've really been wondering about the China thing lately. And this little provision sent me down a rabbit hole. I started digging and digging. And I just thought, is there something coming with respect to the sea lanes and our ability, because as far as I understand it, the U.S. Navy basically keeps the sea lanes open. I think somebody tweeted this at me, and I started looking into it. And when when you spend half of the world's defense dollars, and then a third of that is the Navy, that's a lot of money. That's obviously, I mean, we spend more defense dollars than everybody else combined. But what I didn't know is that the Navy has this big plan that they're trying to push where they, I think, want to double their budget and reduce the other budget. And they keep talking about how it's to defend these supply chains, it's to defend the sea lanes, how much easier it will be to get this passed now that the American voter understands the pain of a of when the sea lanes get interrupted, and it actually referred to the Long Beach port getting backed up. And I, of course, thought about the Evergreen or whatever those big giant car, two big container ships ran aground, one in the Suez Canal and one like in the Potomac or something, Potomac. 
And there was like really a lot of aggressive language in this stuff about the Navy. And I'm wondering if they think that at some point it is going to come to blows there as China starts building up their ability to protect the sea lanes. And we kind of want to be the ones who control it. That if they think that it's going to come to blows as that dominance of the Indo-Pacific, you know, transit area comes out that they want to make sure that we still have, we have autarky, to use Mussolini's term, I think, of the really high-tech stuff that we would need to fight that kind of a war. So I actually might do a whole deep dive on that because I think that it could be the underlying thing in a lot of this stuff. Or at least going down that road may lead us to more answers. So keep that in the back of your mind. But also this thing about what electric vehicles could be bought, all the strings attached. It's really, really specific as to what it takes to qualify for these tax credits. And Tesla and GM, I think, are the ones that are going to kind of benefit the most from this. And I feel like when they make things super, super specific, it's meant to have only one or two companies fit the bill. It's meant to get the money to one company over another, but you can't really write it like that. That's not acceptable or maybe not even legal. And $40 billion of this money is going to go to the USDA for climate smart agriculture programs. That goes to the food stuff, <clears throat> biofuel development. That goes to when I was talking about gasoline prices, like with the ag programs, that whole like worldwide agriculture, they're interrupting the supply chains and the food supply they want people to adopt this smart agriculture everywhere. And I guess they're going to start here. Biofuel, they're moving. They're, our refineries are shutting down or being repurposed for biofuel. And that's causing some of this gas pro- gasoline price. Okay, it says for, uh, those two things, forest restoration work, renewable energy tax credits, conservation technical assistance, and rural electric cooperative carbon capture and storage and resilience projects. Okay, rural Electric Cooperative, Carbon Capture and Storage and Resilience Projects, whatever. Uh, They're always after the rurals. And that stuff's all about shaping the future, controlling behavior. It's not necessarily just getting payola to Tesla. And they keep saying it's the biggest and best climate bill ever. I've noticed that a lot. Like, they keep pushing that. And actually, mm, it may be... It may be the biggest one we've ever done, but like this significant impact, I think, is being overplayed. I think they're looking to use this as something that will attract midterm fo- voters like Democrats. That, and of course, the Republicans want to say that this is a reason to get Republican voters because it's so bad. But it's like not really big enough for me to be freaked about it. And one of the things that they're saying is that, okay, so the U.S., the, the, our stated goal apparently is uh, by the end of this decade, by 2030, that's the U.N. and World Economic Forum magic number, 2030, we're supposed to reduce our carbon emissions by half of what they were in 2005. That's a lot. Uh, so that we can keep our global temperature rise to 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit or less. Now, to me... If there's any organic or natural thing that's making the the temperatures rise, then this isn't going to make a difference. And even if it did make a difference, like, how would we ever really know? It's just, this stuff is so 
like made up in my opinion. Uh, but here, a preliminary assessment by the Rhodium Group, an independent research provider, estimated that this bill would reduce national greenhouse gas emissions 31 to 44% below 2005 levels by 2030. So that gets you very close to that 50% goal. But that compares only with 24 to 35% under current policy. So it may be nothing. If current policy would get you 35% of the way there, this only got you 31%. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I doubt that's possible because they say the current policies are based on um, scheduled retirements of coal-fired plants, the rapid fall in prices for wind and solar energy that's already taken place, and increasing adoption of electric vehicles by American drivers. They're saying that that alone will get this down to the 25 to 30, 24 to 35% reduction range already. And at the end of this term, it would be 31 to 44%. So it's like arguably no difference at all. And then they said, but you still have to get to 50%, which we will leave up to uh, executive orders and stuff like that. I was reading an article that suggested that. They had to give Joe Manchin a little something. So they are restoring three canceled oil and gas leases, lease sales in the Gulf of Mexico and Alaska's Cook Inlet. Uh, they are making permits for solar and wind projects on federal lands contingent on these lease sales. So there's a little something, but, you know, the green impact, the positive impact here is more than offsetting any negative impact from this. But that was Manchin's horse trading. I think Manchin and Cinema, boy, you should hear what Cinema ended up doing. That was, that's scandalous, what she, what she used her horse trading to do. Because they had, every single one had, had power. And I guess most of them just signed off, but these two held out. So there's also a little thing in here which just indicates to me what, how they like use this to grease the palms of their friends. Green, quote, banks will get $27 billion of financing to use to subsidize little green projects in localities. And these banks aren't like taking deposits or anything. They are making these little investments and then they're bundling this stuff up and selling them to Wall Street. So these banks stand to to profit quite a bit, uh, but I don't know, you know, I guess the alternative would be to have government agencies evaluate these investments. I don't know, which is, which is worse, <laughs> fascism or communism. I don't know. <laughs> so, okay. So the next big category is healthcare. This bill increases healthcare spending by $98 billion. And it mostly does that by extending some Obamacare insurance premium subsidies that were created kind of fairly recently by the American Rescue Plan. They're going to extend those for an additional three years. And they are going to, now this is what's supposed to make a lot of the money. So it's $800 billion in new revenue almost. $288 billion of that is coming from Medicare's ability to negotiate the prices of certain drugs. And they're going to put a cap of $2,000 on out-of-pocket prescription drug costs for people on Medicare. Now, I assume that the bigger guys are going to be in a better position to negotiate with these drug prices. Maybe smaller guys who have one product and a lot of R&D aren't really going to be able to negotiate. Maybe, maybe Medicare will take it easy on them. But I always find that regulatory capture makes me think that the bigger big pharma 
is going to maybe even be able to squeeze out smaller competitors through something like this. I don't know. This is one of those things you'd have to really dig into. Uh, another one, this is what I love, free vaccinations for seniors because they're not getting enough vaccines as it is. <laughs> ah, that's a good one. Okay, so, all right, but this is where the, a lot of it is in the taxes, and I can't help but feel like this is the main purpose of this thing is to put some tax changes in place. It puts a 15% minimum tax on corporations that earn more than a billion dollars in annual profits. And they are saying that that's going to raise 258 billion. So uh, over five, over 500 billion of the money that's being raised or the revenue that's being generated is from the Medicare price costs cuts and these corporate minimum taxes. But I hate minimum taxes of any kind. Because there's a tax code, and if your deductions mean that you don't make enough to pay X amount under the tax code, presumably the deductions are legit or you'd be going to jail, so they're making you pay this extra tax even if your expenses are quite high. I don't like it. I, I was burned by that once when I was an investment banker. I had all of these school loans. I was absolutely just all my cash went out the window and then I got hit with some like minimum taxes. And actually, actually, I think I was in like a super, super high tax bracket for like one brief shining moment. And that was the time I had to pay all those school loans and I was just absolutely dead broke. But I think there was a time when I had an alternative minimum tax experience and it was terrible because I didn't actually have the money. Like the deductions were legit and I didn't have the money. So anyway, uh, but here's one, here's the thing that I think is, really nefarious. They imposed a 1% excise tax on stock buybacks, and they're going to raise $73 billion that way. Now, I don't understand why they act like stock buybacks are some kind of scheme. Because like Elizabeth Warren said, it's, it's like hard to even understand that it's a scheme that where executives want to pump up the price of the stock before they cash it in. And I mean instinctively, I would just say that sounds illegal as it is. I mean, if they're doing that, you should be able to prove that and take action against them personally. I'm sure that's not permitted. Maybe it is, maybe it is, but I don't think that's what this is about at all. And I really hate it because stock buybacks like stock issuances and debt issuances and debt repayments are just ways that you decide how to finance best, the cheapest way to finance. And if you think your stock is undervalued, you don't want to have that kind of stock is considered a very expensive way to finance your company as opposed to, so if you have really low interest rates, you're going to want to stock, buy back your stock that will increase the price of the stock for the remaining shareholders, but you're still giving any shareholders who want to sell the stock back as a voluntary or it's proportional, and then you get to keep some of this higher-valued stock in the end, and then you're financing with cheaper debt. I mean, it's it's great. And if there's a problem with stock buybacks, they're probably going to, that's going to impact their decisions on when to issue stocks, if to do a buyback. It's going to distort the most efficient financing. I don't like stuff like that. But they didn't have it in there, I don't think, until Kirsten Cinema insisted on nixing the they were going to close the carried interest provision. They closed the carried interest loophole. Now, I don't know if they were really going to do it. I don't know if they all like told their lobbyists like, oh, cinema's going to take the fall on this, but don't worry, it won't get in there. It won't get in there. So they all looked like they were on board, but cinema put her foot down. 
and ends up, so I'll tell you what Carrie it is, but the private equity community does not, they fight hard. They lobby hard. They, I think they spent $222 million on lobbying against this thing closing, which they should have, because if this went through, it would have raised $14 billion for the government revenues and they don't like it. And, uh, a really huge, probably one of the biggest, if not the biggest, but among the biggest, KKR is probably the biggest, TBG, Texas Pacific Group, is a huge private equity company that would not want this to go through. And Cinema actually was an intern at the, one of the founder's wineries. So there's a 3-6 winery. She was an intern there. It's uh, run by, owned by William Price III, the three... The third is the three sticks. And he was one of the three founders of TPG. And they and she gets lobbying money from them. And normally, like, I think taxes are bad and I don't want that. But this is, I think this is quite an unfair tax advantage that they have. And the way it works is, I believe this is how it works. Byron, correct me if I'm wrong, that these guys do private equity deals. And one of the payment they get as individuals and as a firm is stock in the company. Now they're getting that as income. That's what they're getting instead of just them getting like a paycheck. And if they hang on to it for three years, all of that is taxed at the capital gains rate, which is like 20% versus 40 or 50%. I'm not sure how the, the state works, state taxes work, but so it's like half or less than half of what they would pay if there's ordinary income. And I don't mind so much if they if they would deduct what the initial value of the stock was because that is what the gains are. But I think they get to do it the entire thing, which would mean that it acts like it was worth nothing to start out with. And it definitely was worth something. They got something of value. I understand that it's not valuable if you can't sell it, but there's there's some NPV. You could probably sell this option at a number day one if it were transferable as an option value kind of thing. So I don't like this. I think it should close. And I think it was nasty that they switched it to something that doesn't make sense from something that did make sense. Okay. And here's the thing that people are really freaked about. This act will add 87,000 new IRS agents to the IRS roster, and it's being sold as helping to speed up the processing of refunds that some taxpayers have been waiting for as long as 10 months to receive. I think I'm due for a tax refund, and I don't think we've gotten it yet. So, like, I feel like I have skin in this game, and yeah, that's a great idea, right? But two things I would like to say about that. First, the fact that we're feeling the pain of that promotes this. Similarly to the way that feeling the pain on the supply chain and the shipping promotes like the Navy plan to expand, the IRS wants to expand by showing us that they're understaffed. The only reason there's this problem is that people had to file taxes and file back taxes to get the stimmy checks. So I personally know two people who had to go through and file all their back taxes so they could get their STEMI checks, and which I did not think was great, but that's what they did. And if that's two people I know, and I know they did it, imagine how many people are doing that. So I think that they deli- there's no reason for them to do that. I think they deliberately created a tremendous un- 
manageable backlog. Probably IRS agents were staying home anyway, so they took the agents out of the picture and increased the workload in order to make it look like we need all these extra people. But this is one of the provisions that's raising a lot of money. They're saying this is going to increase $175 billion worth of revenue, even though $80 billion is being spent on these new agents. Well, I mean, how does it raise revenue if you just have agents processing tax returns that would get processed anyway. It's because most of it, most of this is being used for enforcement. It's not being used to push this along. It's being used for enforcement. And just to give you a sense of how much we're talking here, this is from a new news source I found I think it's called something like News Nation Now or something. Anyway, they said that the, or maybe this was out of the Forbes article I was reading. I have it all in the show notes if anybody really wants to look. All right. Uh, it says this $80 billion is more than six times the current annual IRS budget of $13 billion. Now, the 80 has to be over 10 years, right? So it's, that was a misleading way of putting it. So it's probably $8 billion a year, but still, that's 40%, right? Is at least two-thirds of the almost two-thirds of the budget of the IRS. So that's a huge, huge increase. And that's because they're going to increase the enforcement, increase audits. Now, all the articles I've read said that the that enforcement would be focused on corporations and high-income earners. But I didn't see any provision that required that. Like, I think that's just editorial. Like every article I read has all these editorial things that are nonsense that aren't really in the bill, but they're just, they're conflating the goal, the stated goal with what the actual legislation says. I don't think it says that that's all they're supposed to target. I think they're targeting everybody. And uh, a recent study, this is from one of those articles that I was reading, a recent study from Syracuse University found that the poorest families were audited at a rate five times higher than everyone else. And I totally believe that. Because like I was saying, I got hit like with an alternative minimum tax once. Anytime my husband got like uh, into a higher tax bracket, his deductions would go backwards. Like you don't get to deduct, at a certain point, like some of your deductions go away and your average rate approaches the marginal rate. And the closer you get to that, you know, the fewer deductions you have, the less likely you are to get audited. Now, I guess there are like rich people who have their own um, entrepreneurial interests and maybe those guys get away with it. I don't know. But for us, we got a good accountant. He's going to go with us if we get audited. But I can't see that we ever would because our tax bill is so high, like as a percentage. And, you know, I doubt they want to go after They just don't. Like there are flags of who they go after. So I think that your like professional class is already totally maxed out on the taxes anyway. And furthermore, to the extent there is that low-hanging fruit of big high earners or corporations that are not paying their, you know, legislated amount, that's probably where the enforcement dollars are going right now. You don't you only need like an army of enforcers when you are going to hit like a volume, the volume level, not the tiny margin at the top, but the like the masses. I, I just, I think this is going to really increase audits on regular people. That's what I think. And another thing is that many of the agents, these new agents will be armed 
They will be special agents in a like the criminal division. It's called the IRS Criminal Investigation Division. And by the way, if you ever see that, if you see an armed IRS agent or a criminal IRS agent come to you, get an attorney. <laughs> this is in the Forbes article. You are not legally required to talk to this person. They can lie and tell you that they're not even interested in you, that you're not the target, even if you are. So I don't know if you have to talk to any IRS agent, but you definitely don't have to talk to these criminal ones. And uh, the Government Accountability Office said at the end of 2017, so it was a long time ago, the IRS had almost 5,000 guns and 5 million rounds of ammunition in its inventory. Um, a little anecdote in one of these articles was this, they discharged their weapons accidentally more than intentionally. But fortunately, it's only a few times a year. Anyway, I think that's kind of interesting. Republicans are arguing that the bill will effectively raise the tax burden on middle-class voters. They say the new 15% minimum tax on corporations will result in higher prices, lower wages, suppressed entire retirement accounts, and at the same time beefed up IRS funding will result in more painful tax audits for regular folks. That sounds, that sounds like a reasonable expectation. <laughs> so let me just tell you before we wrap it up what the inflation impact is. So they're estimating that there will be a $248 billion reduction in the budget deficit over the next 10 years. Now, that's not the deficit from what it is now. It's the deficit compared to what it would have been if you projected it without this bill. They always say that, but it doesn't mean that it's a lower budget deficit. And that's not a lot. $24 billion in a budget deficit that has run in the multi-trillions, shockingly, and a $30 trillion-plus national debt, not that much. And it's more like, like a, more, a rounding error. I can't even imagine. These numbers, projections are always wrong. That's what you learn when you do projections. They're always wrong. What you want to do is do enough of them to understand the kind of range of outcomes to see what's like most likely. You do what you can. But a number like this is tiny. And even if it's true, even if it is 24 or $25 billion a year, it is uh, one of the assessments. I, don't, I think this might have been the official assessment or one of these research firms, three basis points a year. A basis point is a hundredth of an of a percentage point, which is a hundredth of the whole number. So three basis points is three hundredths of a percentage point. So if you have whatever, 10% inflation, which I know we don't have, it would be reduced by 0.3%. So maybe it's 0.2% percentage points if it's a 7% inflation rate. I don't know. I hope that math is right. Okay, so I do, I do understand the one argument that if you reduce deficit spending, it will reduce how much money printing there is because the Fed, one way or another, basically monetizes the debt. We have a debt-based currency. The more debt that the government puts out, the more money the Fed can print. They're really not supposed to do it one-to-one -one like that, but I've heard Powell say, Pelosi has to pass the spending bill so I can print the money. <laughs> so if there's a teeny reduction in the deficit, I guess theoretically there's a teeny reduction in the amount of money the Fed prints. And in the immortal words of Milton Friedman, 
Inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. It's not called inflation if it's not an increase in the money supply. It's not an increase in the price level. So if your gasoline prices are going up because there are fewer refiners, that is not inflation. That's an increase in gasoline prices. And if that happens a lot, if that flows to the rest of the economy, you could have a, an increase in the price level without actually inflation. So uh, I think that is true that this the deficit spending may be impacts inflation, but the other suggestions that reducing energy costs or reducing insurance premia because because the climate will be healing, even if that were true, that's not really anti-inflationary, but it could offset rising prices. It could. Um, make your cost of living lower. But the inflation thing to me is just ridiculous. And of course, they just did it so they could call it that. So it would be something these guys could bring home and not get uh, voted out in November. Rather, they want to use this to stay in in November. So basically, in a nutshell, this thing is supposedly going to increase revenue by 800 billion over 10 years almost while costing less by spending less than 500 billion so that's going to be like uh, almost 300 billion in deficit reduction or over 300 billion they're going to save the money through IR or raise the revenue by IRS collections a corporate minimum tax stock buyback penalty and the Medicare drug pricing negotiations and they're going to spend half of it basically on green subsidies and maybe some extra Obamacare but there are rabbit holes to go down down. I think I might pull on a few of these threads. Ugh. I just mix a metaphor. I hate that. Um, all right. So in the end, my takeaway is going to have absolutely nothing to do with this, except for the fact that calling the Build Back Better bill, the Inflation Reduction Bill or Act, is kind of crazy. And I was thinking recently, somebody sent me a picture. Finally, they sent it a long time ago. I finally found it. The picture of our meetup in Waltham, which I'm told it's pronounced Waltham, even though there's only one H, but okay. I'll give it to you. We had a meetup in Waltham. Some folks from New Hampshire came. I think it was mostly New Hampshire. And it was super fun. And there was like these lost pictures. And I think Alex sent me the pictures. So thank you very much. If anybody's in that picture and they don't want me to put it in the newsletter, email me at monicaperezshow at gmail.com because I'm putting it in the newsletter. Um, but on the way home, uh, Toons and Brucey gave me a ride home, a ride to my nephew's house, and an Ozzy Osbourne song came up, Crazy Train, came on the radio, and I was like, we all agreed, the song makes no sense. How do you go off the rails? If you're going off the rails on the Crazy Train, are you crazy Er? Or are you getting sane? And like, how long can being off the rails, the, you just can't be off the rails. That's what Fat Mitch was like, it doesn't even last that long. <laughs> he has the same problem with the song. If you're going off the rails on the crazy train, that's like 30, by the end of the song, it'd be over. It'd be a fiery wreck. You'd be off the rails. They, you'd be gone. So I do, I'm interested in people's opinion on whether going off the rails on the crazy train means that you are no longer crazy. And if being on the rails on the crazy train mean that you are still on the crazy train and therefore crazy. So I'd like to know, I'm, I'm taking a little poll, what you think about that. Maybe I'll, I'll tweet it. So you can email me, monicaprezshow at gmail.com, or you can answer my tweet. I'll, as soon as I'm finished here, I will go tweet that. I am Monica Perez. 
And if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it on social media or with someone you think would also enjoy it. And feel free to tweet at me at Monica Perez Show.